Welcome to the Afterlife Files, where we investigate near-death experiences, share death experiences, and how they affect you. Unlike podcasts that are just stories, we will give you the heads up on what to look for in our conversation, and then after the interview, help you make sense of those accounts so you can incorporate the insights into your life. I think you'll find that once having your most profound questions answered, you'll find more peace and joy living here in the physical world. We are extremely fortunate to have Dr. Bruce Grayson with us today. For those of you who haven't heard him, you are in for a treat. Bruce was there at the very beginning of the research into near-death experiences. He's both a medical doctor and a psychiatrist. His role for the last 40 plus years has been to investigate every theory that's come down the path with those two lenses. These theories were cockamamie to credible, and he loved the ability to investigate the validity of each idea. Here's a couple of examples. Are NDEs caused by a lack of oxygen to the brain? Or the result of mental illness? or were caused by drugs. He did studies on all of them and so much more. By the way, the answer is no to each of those I just mentioned. For those of you who know of Dr. Grayson or have heard him speak before, you're also in for a treat. He's gonna summarize the eight lessons learned from over 40 years of research. He'll do that right up front. I think the last two might surprise you. Bruce will also talk about where near-death experience research is going beyond the physical and psychological approaches. For those of you who are sensitive to energy, pay attention to how he transmits his energy to you to emphasize a point he's making. About halfway through, he's talking about the near-death experience being hyper-real experience. He'll say, and I quote, much more real than me talking to you right now. And at that last bit there, see if you can feel that energy transmission. It's kind of fun. His conversation with the Dalai Lama about the role of empirical observation is priceless, as is the last two minutes of the interview. He sums up what he believes to be the NDE's contribution to society and how we should be moving forward. Have fun. Here's our interview. This is a wonderful day that we get to have Bruce Grayson with us. Welcome, Bruce. Glad to have you here. Thanks, Scott. I'm so glad to be with you today. Let me uh, uh, read a short bio. Okay. Bruce Grayson, MD, is the Chester Carlton Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences and Director Emeritus of the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia and a Distinguished Life Fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. He thankfully co-founded the International Association for Near-Death Studies and for 26 years, yahoo, <laughs> edited the Journal of Near-Death Studies. He has published extensively, let me repeat that, extensively on near-death experiences. Yay, Bruce, glad to have you here. Thanks, Scott. Glad to be here with you. 
before we get going, I just, I just have to do kind of this little intro because after <laughs> I was profoundly moved by this Bruce book and in, in particular, I thought it was just, just beautifully written. I wanted to, to stay with the stories and see where they were going. And you just led me through decades worth of scientific research in a way that I thought was um, not only insightful, but profoundly entertaining. I got about two thirds of the way through the book and I was, I just got all teary eyed because I'm sitting here thinking the amount of research and time and effort it took to, that went into this book um, is extraordinary. We are so lucky that we had you for over 40 years diving into what is near-death experiences and what are they comprised of and how do they make meaning? I, I'm just, I'm just really um, heartfelt grateful. And one, one last thing, I'm really grateful that you didn't edit the life out of the stories. <laughs> you know, some accounts you read them and they're just like, there's just nothing there. And some of us who are sensitive you know, when we read what's on the page, um, you know, there's life there. There's the energy of the, of the interview is still in the text. It's in the words. I'm, I don't wonder if it's not imbued in the ink on the page somehow. Mm. Um, so really, um, thank you for writing after. And well, let's start with the obvious question. Why did you call this book after? Yeah, let me just say thank you for those very kind words. I got to say, it was very difficult for me to write this book. For the past half century, I've been trained to write scientific articles in medical journals where you take yourself out of the story and just present the facts. And this is my first attempt to write something for people, not doctors. Um, so I knew I had to put myself into it. Nobody wanted to read it. Um, why did I call it after? Um, you know, it's funny because some people say, oh, it's a great title. And some say, oh, that's terrible. It doesn't mean anything. Um, but the most obvious meaning is this talks about what happens after death. But I also had in mind what happens to people after a near-death experience when they come back. And as I got farther and farther into the book, I started thinking, well, it really applies also to after you read the book. What do you do with this? There we go. So it kind of had multiple, multiple meanings for me. So I really appreciate that, that this has those kind of three perspectives. Um, so one of the things that um, you talk about are kind of the, the six lessons learned from mm -hmm. um, near-death experiences, which it Take a second and just kind of walk us through what those are. Uh, well, it's been a while since I wrote that book, and I've got more than six now. Um, <laughs> okay, you can but, add. It's all right. Yeah. Well, the first thing that I think people need to take away is that these are very common experiences. You know, most studies show that about 5% of the general population has had a near-death experience. That's one in every 20 people. So someone in your family, in your workplace, in your classroom has probably had a near-death experience. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that 
These are normal experiences that happen to normal people in unusual experiences. They have nothing to do with mental illness. We've done a variety of studies, which are described in the book, looking at the intersection between mental illness and near-death experiences, and there just isn't any. Um, people of all types have near-death experiences. It doesn't mean anything about your, your psychological state. The third thing I think that's important to realize is that these experiences have very profound and long-lasting after effects, both positive and negative, and they need to be addressed. Uh, they can't just be ignored. They won't go away. Uh, the fourth thing is that these experiences, if you take them seriously, challenge our thoughts about mind and brain. You know, we're taught that the mind is what the brain does, that the brain creates all our thoughts and perceptions. And in near-death experiences, you often have the brain going offline or being severely compromised. And yet people say their mind, their concentration, their, their uh, consciousness is more vivid than ever. And this should not happen if the mind is, is being created by, by the brain. The next thing is that if that's true, if the mind can function when the brain is not, that opens up the possibility that the mind can continue to function after the brain is dead. And there is a lot of evidence from near-death experiences suggesting that we do, some part of us does survive bodily death. A very important lesson from near-death experiences is that death is not something to be afraid of. That whatever people have in a near-death experience, they come back saying, I'm no longer afraid of death and dying. And that's a tremendous thing for our society, which is so focused on death, particularly in the middle of a, a, a worldwide pandemic, where we're faced with death almost every day. Um, I think for me, one of the biggest lessons is what people from a near-death experience, uh, come back from a near-death experience saying about this life, not about the next life. And they say they come back realizing that we're all in this together. We're not separate entities, we're like, like fingers on a hand. They look like they're separate entities, but if you look at the whole hand, they're all interconnected at the palm. And that's the way we are. We are all part of the same thing. And if you believe that, if you live by that, then the golden rule becomes not just a guideline we're supposed to follow, but a law of nature. That when you hurt other people, you're hurting yourself. And when you're helping other people, you're helping yourself as well. And living your life that way makes it a much more meaningful and fulfilling way to live your life. I think that was more than six. <laughs> I was trying to add that up. I think we're like seven or eight there. We're, we're good. Um, in the process of accumulating this wisdom, I, I got the sense from the book that in the early days of near-death research, that um, your life was like, well, near-death experiences could be this, it could be that, it could be this other thing. And it, it just like they kept firing things at you. And it was kind of like, your job to uh, separate wheat from chaff. What was that like to have people keep pummeling you like that? Well, I, I welcomed it because I didn't know how to make sense of them. You know, I was raised in a, in a scientific materialistic household and we never thought about anything spiritual or religious that wasn't part of our family. So I went through college and medical school with that mindset that the physical world was all there was. And when you die, that's the end. And then when I became a psychiatrist, I started being confronted with 
these experiences that we now call NDEs. There wasn't a name for them. This was long before Moody wrote his book that gave us the name near-death experience. I didn't know what to make of them, but I couldn't pretend they didn't happen because they were happening and I was seeing them one after another. So being a scientist, I tried to study them and figure out what's going on. And I assumed at first, there must be some simple physiological explanation for this. Yeah. So we kept testing one hypothesis after another and finding that data do not support any of them. And you know, eventually when I got to know enough of the near-death experiences in depth, the profound impact I learned of these experiences was far beyond any trick of the brain, any dream, any hallucination. It was something very profound going on here. And so now here in 2022, um, is the science around near-death experiences reasonably settled? Near-death oh, no. experiences are real? Not by any means. Um, you know, I think most of those people who have studied near-death experiences in depth uh, come away with that, that sense that, that um, these are definitely spiritual experiences. They're also physiological experiences. They're both. Right. You know, I think when people argue about is this spiritual or is it physical, um, that's a bogus distinction. It's both. Just like my desk is, is wooden and it's rectangular, that's a physical description. It's also a legacy from my grandfather who left it to me in his will. That's a psychological or spiritual uh, description. And you can't understand my desk without understanding both of those. And also with near-death experiences, you can't understand them without coming to terms with both the physical and the spiritual aspects of it. Mm -hmm. So I think most people who study near-death experiences come away with that understanding. But in the last decades, there have been more and more people getting interested in NDEs from a variety of perspectives. Right. And some of those are uh, psychological, some are anthropological or sociological, and some are physiological. And they all come to the NDE with a different mindset. Um, so some of them think that it's just a purely physical thing, and some do not. And it'll be interesting to see how they work this out. Um, boy, that sounded like you were passing the flag right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am. I am. Um, well, no, I, I, interested I've in seeing how of... they all work it out. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think it's going to take more than my lifetime to work it out. And one of my jobs now, I think, is to mentor the younger people who are 20, 30, 40 years younger than I am, who are looking at this phenomenon and teaching them what's, uh, how, to, how to study this in, in a legitimate way and come up with their own conclusions. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting because you've got the background both as, as a medical doctor and as a psychiatrist. So yeah. you, you got two lenses to look at this. And... Um, you know, certainly in the in the early years, uh, you wrote a lot about the um, the physiological things, and and now I'm I'm seeing just a general shift into how people are making meaning out of this experience, both individually and as a culture. Can would you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I, I think um, as you said, I, I came to this as a as a doctor and a psychiatrist, so I came with a uh, first a physical and then a psychological mindset to it. Um, but there are other people addressing it now 
with very different backgrounds, people with uh, backgrounds in anthropology or in uh, religious studies who come at it looking at how is this the same or different from shamanic experiences, meditative experiences, other spiritual experiences, psychedelic experiences. And they have a different uh, background than I do, and they can ask different questions than I can. And I, I know in the book that you, several of the folks were wrestling for with how did they make meaning out of this experience? Um, tell us a story. Uh, well, I think, I think almost every near-death experiencer comes back with that. Um, whether they have a, a spiritual or religious background or not, uh, the NDE often um, conflicts with what they thought was going to happen when they went into the, uh, the near-death state. And they have to wrestle them with, with, what does this mean? If this is a real experience, and I should say that almost every near-death experiencer thinks it is real, how do I reconcile that with what I thought was going to happen, what my belief system was? And although some um, go back to their uh, original religion, the majority do not. They come away thinking that what they've learned in the NDE is a basic spiritual truth that transcends any of our organized religions. And they tend to feel equally at home in any religion of any denomination. But they often have to struggle with how to, how to integrate that into their lives. Um, now, for, for some people who are spiritual people before the NDE, that may not be difficult. But a lot of people are not, particularly in our Western culture, which is a very achievement-oriented culture. And I think it's hardest for people who live a life that necessarily involves violence or aggression. Um, for example, I, I've talked to uh, career police officers or military officers who, when they came back from a near-death experience, had a terrible time dealing with how to, how to live my life now, knowing what I know from the NDE. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, Steve Price was a um, self-described schoolyard bully whose goal in life was to become a Marine. And he did that. And he was actually a, a sergeant leading his troops in, in, uh, in Vietnam. And he was shot. Um, he had a bulletproof vest on, but he was raising his rifle to shoot and a, frag a shell went in the armhole of his vest and plunged into his chest and, and there was shrapnel throughout his lungs. He was air evac to the Philippines to a hospital and in the operation to uh, clear out the, the shrapnel in his lungs, he had a near-death experience, a very elaborate one where he was encounter, encountering uh, deceased loved ones and some type of a deity. Um, and he came back full of this typical NDE uh, ethic that we're all part of the same thing. There's no difference between me and anybody else. And knowing that, he didn't say how he could possibly shoot somebody else. And yet that was his job. That was his career. And after rehab, after physical rehab, he was actually sent back into the jungle and tried to lead his troops, but just couldn't do it. And he ended up leaving the Marines and coming back to the States and trying to be a healthcare professional. And you see that again and again and again, people coming back from an NDE and changing their careers, going into some type of helping profession, uh, you know, clergy, uh, teaching, social work, healthcare, which often causes great problems in their families. If the family was based on 
uh, material goods or a certain type of lifestyle, um, they may have to change the, the, the way they live their lives and the way the family uh, is, is structured. So I'm guessing that the, the family who has um, now inherited this new person might um, not appreciate the new person or it's like, who, who took Uncle Fred from us? That's right. That's right. Yeah, we had one, one person who had a, a near-death experience um, told me that, that uh, his wife is having a great deal of difficulty dealing with this. And she said to him, um, you know, I married a, a funny, uh, f- funny guy. I didn't marry a, an old, a old Testament prophet. You know, what is this? Um, <laughs> really? Old Testament yeah, prophet? Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, you may you may have known Tom Sawyer, who was uh, yeah sure a very 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 vocal in death experience. I got to know Tom and his family very well, and Tom uh, was kind of a joker. He was a, a class clown. He read about never having read a book after he graduated high school, and he had his NDE in his thirties and became a voracious reader and you know totally transformed. And and one time his wife said to me. You know, there's good and bad about the changes in him. You know, on the positive side, um, he hasn't beaten me once since his NDE. Oh, no. <laughs> on the negative side, we desperately need a new car. He couldn't care less. Oh. So what about people who um, were raised to believe one thing about the afterlife and then came back and went, that's just bogus. It, yeah. That isn't what I have discovered. Yeah, that, that's very, very common. And I hear that from people who were raised in a particular religion where they were expecting a certain thing to happen and it didn't. And I've also heard it from people who were atheists who were expecting nothing to happen and were confronted by what they experienced as a deity. And they were totally flummoxed by that. Um, but they can't deny their experience. Uh, one of the one of the surprising things about this experience for me was that virtually every near-death experiencer says that this is a hyper-real experience. It's much more real than me talking to you right now. And there's nothing in my life that I can compare to that. So I just have to, you know, take them at their word and say, yeah, okay, I, I take your word for it. I don't, I don't know what that means, but I gather that that means to you this, that's the ultimate reality. Um, and when you compare that with what their belief system was beforehand, um, they realized that was just a hypothesis that wasn't right, and I need to find a new one. And for the most part, are they okay with that cognitive dissonance? No. Um, <laughs> no? It, it's, it's challenging, um, because often their lives were built around this previous uh, mindset or way of life, and it creates a lot of havoc in their lives. And they eventually come around to understanding, making sense out of it all, but it can be a very difficult adjustment. I'm uh, one of the quotes from your book goes, family and friends find their attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors change as a result of intimate exposure to experiencers. I think you were referring to yourself at that point, <laughs> but um so certainly when things change in the, with the experiencer and then the family's now confronted with this new reality that the experiencer is putting forth, um, 
there's some movement on their part too. Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, and and some people can't move, and they, they end up um, getting divorced because they can't adjust to the way the near death experience has changed. Um, but most people do adjust and um, somehow come to terms to terms with this. Um, it's not an easy adjustment, um, but it's kind of based on on how solid the relationship was beforehand. Yeah. So if you've got you know decades of of good relationship as you know Tom Sawyer did with his his wife, they just adapted to it and managed to to live with it. And I think you said, um, memory serves me right, 65% of near-death experiencers wind up having a divorce. That's, boy, talk about troubles. Well, uh, those aren't good data. Um, these okay. are anecdotal. We'll take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. Uh, and also you have to take into fact that, that about half of all marriages in the U.S. and then divorce. So it's not that different from other people's uh, marriages. Uh, what's different, though, is the reasons people give for divorce. Mm. Most people who haven't had an NDE end up getting divorced either because of financial problems or infidelity issues uh, or something like that. Um, whereas near-death experiences often find their divorces are due to this altered change in worldview that they just can't reconcile. Speaking of worldview, um, there is uh, a lovely story about you and the Dalai Lama and how there's a, a difference in, in the Western approach oh, yeah. and, and the approach that Buddhists have. Um, right. Tell that story. We, it really touched yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. This is a little over a decade ago. I was invited to um, go to the Dalai, um, Dalai Lama's uh, compound in Dharamsala, India, uh, for a conference um, between Western scientists and Buddhist monks, talking about consciousness and the mind-brain mind issue. And he started off the conference, the Dalai Lama, by talking about the similarities and differences between Western science and, and Buddhist uh, thought. And he said that both are rooted in empirical observations, that Buddhism isn't tied to dogma any more than Western science is based on observation and then drawing conclusions from that. But he said the difference is that Western scientists make observations and try to understand the world around us so that we can modify it and control it and adapt it to our needs. Whereas the Buddhist approach is to try to understand the way the universe works so that we can live more harmoniously with it as it is, not to change it. And that really struck me because I've been working as a scientist all my life, trying to understand things so we can change them and make life better. And this is a different mindset that you make life better by learning how to live with the world as it is. Would you say that um, near-death experiencers um, come back with a more Buddhist perspective? They do. They don't always say that, but the things they say are very much in, in keeping with, with the way Buddhists approach the world. Um, they also tend to have um, what the Buddhists would call a, 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 child, a fresh eye or a mind's eye, or a child's eye. 
And they approach each experience as if it's the first time they've ever done it. Um, You know, we tend to get jaded a lot and they they do not. Um, And and that's uh, something the NDers come back with. Each time you bite into an apple, my God, this is the best apple I've ever had. Uh, And the Buddhists tend to approach life that way also, that you right there in the moment, enjoying this, getting most of Canada at this particular moment and not looking at past apples or future apples, just what's going on right now. Speaking of time, you had a, um, uh, interesting reflections on how time is distorted during a near-death episode, <clears throat> excuse me, experience. Um, what are some of the consequences that people have um, once they've experienced this, this time distortion? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Scott, because they almost always say that um, time was, dis- was different in the NDE. And sometimes they just say it was going much faster or much slower than ever. But the more extreme ones say there was no sense of time there. And they describe that in different ways. Some say, I was aware that there's still the earth time, but I was in a different realm where there wasn't that type of earth time. And some say, no, now I realize that the earth time was just an illusion. And it doesn't exist. And that all of us, all the universe is just in this timeless state. Now, that was a paradox for me because when people tell you about their near-death experience, they describe it as if it's a sequence of events. I did this, and then I did that, and then this happened. And I didn't understand how you could have a sequence without having time passing. But when I ask near-death experiences about this, they say, yes, it's a paradox if you think about it with your brain here in this earth time. But over there, there wasn't a paradox at all because things were happening in sequence and all together at the same time. There's no difference. Um, and you know, like so many things about the NDE, you can't really describe it in our language. Our language is created to live in this world. And it's not really well suited to describing the spiritual world at all. No, I, I think of it as um, this world, this physical world is governed by um, the words either or. Yeah. Either I, I'm here and this desk is different than I am. But when you flip into the non-physical world, it's governed by the words both and. I am me and I'm part of the whole. I am experiencing things linearly and I'm experiencing them all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's got to, it takes a while to get your brain wrapped around that. It is, but let me say, say Scott, that this is our Western mindset. This is the logic that Aristotle gave us that things are either X or Y. They're not both. Um, and the Hindus and, and Buddhist uh, traditions has a different type of logic. And in their perspective, it can be A or it can be B or it can be A and B or it can be neither A nor B. And our logic doesn't allow us to do that. It's gotta be either A or B. It can't be both and it can't be neither. So this is our our Western mindset, which has been very successful for a lot of things, um, but it doesn't help us grasp with with the basic reality you see in an NDE. Um, I noticed, that when you talked about the life review, 
you talked about it happening from three perspectives that you get to have your experiences yourself and you get to have the experience as the other and then from this omniscient mm. point of view so it can be even like three different perspectives all yeah. going on at the same time yeah yeah this is this is a uh, very profound aspect of the nde which often leads them to this other worldview that we're all in this together because they go back in the life review and re-experience events in their lives, not only through their eyes, but through the eyes of other people as well. Let me tell you, give you a couple of examples of this. Okay, great. One is back is Tom Sawyer again. Um, he had his NDE when he was in his thirties, when a truck he was working under fell down and crashed, crushed his chest. And he remembered a whole lot of sequences in his, in his life that had this, so we call empathic part of it, where you experience it from other people's lives. But the one that was most graphic for me was when he was a teenager, driving his truck down the street, and a drunk man winded out in front of his truck, and he jammed on the brakes, furious because this guy almost dented his truck, for God's sake. So he, he rolled down the window and started yelling at the man, and the man, unfortunately being trunk, drunk, reached his hand in the window and slapped Tom across the face. That was too much for this hot-headed teenager. So he got out of the truck and started beating the man got up, up terribly. And he left him a bloody mess on the median strip, got back in his truck and drove off. Well, when he had his NDE, he experienced this through his own eyes, feeling the, the rage and the adrenaline rush, but also through the eyes of the drunk man, feeling the humiliation of being beaten up by this kid, the, uh, the 32 uh, blows on his face, now, Tom couldn't have told you it was 32 until he got his NDE. And then he, he, he counted them through the other guy's he eyes. He counted them? Oh, my yeah. word. He said, he, said, he said, when you have these NDEs, you have time to slow down and see the whole thing in great detail. He said, you can count the number of mosquitoes that are around you, around you in an NDE. But he felt this other guy's teeth going through his lower lip, his nose getting bloody, everything from this guy's perspective. And he came back from that realizing that we're all the same thing. That when you hurt someone else, you're hurting yourself and we're all in this together. Let me give you another example. Okay. Um, Barbara Harris Whitfield had an NDE in which she went back to her childhood in the life review and remembered and relived, I should say, uh, being abused by her mother. And in her life before this, she had, um, approach this in the sense of a victim, that I was abused by my mother, how horrible that was, how horrible my mother must have been. But going through this in her life review, she also relived it through her mother's eyes and felt how trapped her mother was in this way of relating to her kids and didn't know any other way to express herself. And she came back from this NDE with tremendous empathy for her mother and understanding of why this happened. And that changed her relationship with her mother after that. Oh, my. That's a... Um, and you also talk about that, I guess it would be like the ripple effect about, you know, what happened to Tom as he experienced this and what happened to the woman as she moved forward in her life. So how that individual action kind of played yeah. out into family and community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as you said before, they experience it not only through their own eyes and sometimes through the eyes of other people, but also through a, a higher perspective 
with looking down on the scene and, and perceiving it from a more spiritual perspective. So back to the physical for just a second, because I was intrigued by um, you talking about uh, the brain as a filter for the, the non-physical mind. Yeah. Um, talk about how you came to that conclusion and kind of what's your metaphor for this now? Yeah, well, yeah, you're right. That's a metaphor. Um, there isn't a literal filter there, but this has been a, a, a theory that's been in current for at least 2000 years. Hippocrates wrote about this in ancient Greece. He said, the brain is a messenger or an interpreter of the mind. The idea being that the mind is somewhere out there and it communicates through the brain to the body and the brain translates for the body. Um, and this has been talked about through the centuries with different models based on the, the current technology of, of that century. People have called it a, a prism, um, a reducing valve, um, and, and the current uh, model is more of a transmission or a filter theory. The idea being that the mind out there has this incredible array of consciousness and it's too much for us. It would overpower us to, to be able to perceive all these things. So the brain evolved to filter out all the quote irrelevant stuff and just let in a small fraction of our consciousness that'll help us survive in the physical world. Kind of like when you're uh, tuning in a radio station with a radio, there are thousands of radio stations out there. And if you listen to them all at once, you wouldn't be able to understand any of them. But the radio tuner lets you tune in one particular station and filters out all the rest so you can make use of it. And the idea is the brain does the same thing. And this makes sense evolutionary wise because the brain evolved as the rest of us did as a physical organ to help us survive in the physical world. You know, you don't see the entire electromagnetic spectrum. It will overwhelm us. So your eyes not only take in the light, but filter out all the infrared, ultraviolet, and just lets in the small uh, fraction of the wavelengths that, that we can use. And likewise, our ears don't let in all the possible frequencies, just the ones that we need. And the idea is that the brain does this also. It filters out the stuff you don't need to survive, you don't need to converse with deceased loved ones or with the deity in order to find food and shelter and a mate to survive in the physical world. So get rid of all that irrelevant stuff and just let in the important stuff. Does it taste good? Is it poisonous? Should I eat it or not? Um, so the brain is kind of a filter that filters out all the spiritual realm for us and just lets in the information, the perceptions that are relevant to physical survival. This was not my idea. Um, this has been uh, current throughout the, the centuries. Um, there's this book I want to recommend called um, Beyond Physicalism. Uh, that's about reconciling spirituality and physical science. And it has two excellent chapters in there. Uh, one by Michael Grosso about the history of transmission theory or filter theory throughout the centuries. And the other by Ed Kelly and David Presti looking at current neurophysiological explanations for how this filter might work. Beyond physicalism. Okay. Thank you. Um, one of the things you talk about is that when the mind goes quieter, it seems to allow in more of the 
yeah. um, spiritual realm to to use a phrase. Right. Uh, go yeah. talk talk about that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is this is um, one aspect of the, of the filter theory that when um, the brain starts uh, uh, decompensating um, or shutting down, one of the things that gets shut down first is the filtering function. So it stops keeping out all this stuff and lets in all this noise, which is the spiritual realm. Uh, so that you see when people brains get shut down, like when you're having a cardiac arrest and you're not getting blood to your brain, when you're under deep anesthesia and your brain's being put to sleep, then you become aware of all the spiritual world. You have more access to it. And the NDE is not the only area you see this in. Uh, there have been some uh, studies in the past uh, 10, 15 years looking at neuroimaging of people having psychedelic drug trips. We used to think that the way these drugs work is by stimulating the brain to hallucinate. But what these studies have shown is that the more elaborate mystical experiences with these drugs is accompanied by a decrease in the activity of the brain, both the pure uh, amount of electrical activity and the interconnection between different parts of the brain. So again, as the brain is getting quieter and quieter, you get access to more and more spiritual information. There's also another strange phenomenon called terminal lucidity. And we see this sometimes in people who have end-stage dementia, like Alzheimer's disease, who haven't been able to communicate for a long time or recognize family. And sometimes in the hours or sometimes days before they die, they become lucid again. And they can recognize people and carry on conversations coherently. And we have no medical explanation for this. But it fits with the filter theory that as the brain decompensates, the filter gets holes in it or just evaporates entirely, and your consciousness comes back and you can function again. I know because that happened to my grandfather who had um, advanced dementia, and the last week he was alive, uh, he just, uh, I'm not sure coma is the right word, but he was. Mm in generally just not responsive to very much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, one day his caregiver came in and just to see if he, she could feed him some water or something anyway. And um, even though for the last four days, there'd been nobody home, when she walked in the room, he sat up, his eyes were bright and clear. And he looked at her and said, oh, Amelia, it is so wonderful over there. It's just beautiful. And then his eyes clouded, he laid back down and he was gone the next day. Yeah. You know, it's just one of those stories that I care, um, carry near to me. Yeah. 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 So sometimes families who see this, when they see the person communicating again, they think, oh, it's one, he's getting better. Of course, he's not. He's just getting ready to die at that point. So I know that there have been um, studies done with remote viewing, remote uh, viewers. I, I know Joe McMonagall, world-class remote viewer yeah. from this area, um, uh, has been tested six ways to Sunday. And, and he said when he can get his brain waves to go 
you know, close to zero, yeah. that's when all of the information comes in that allows him to be a world-class remote viewer. Yeah. yeah. The, the filters get out of the way. Right. Right. This is consistent with a lot of our spiritual traditions, which use ways of shutting down the brain to stimulate um, spiritual experiences, whether it's by starvation or flagellation or, um, you know, sensory deprivation, uh, you know, they, or, or by drugs, they just sort of shut down the brain so that you can have access to the spiritual realm. Yeah. I know I grew up in Southern Minnesota and the tradition um, there for the, uh, the Lakota tribe was to go into a cave yeah. and, and, and sit in the dark. And so it'd be a sensory deprivation kind of experience. And, you know, after a day or so, it, uh, they, they start to experience the other world as it comes through. Um, so switching subjects uh, a little bit when, when people cross over into the um, near death realm, the non-physical realm, um, at least to my reading, what they encounter seems to be uh, um, culturally derived. You know, that um, Native Americans would see totem animals. Um, I grew up Christian, so maybe I see Jesus. Or um, it gets confusing to people who are in multiple traditions. Mm -hmm. uh, what's your take on this? Yeah, yeah. Well, to start with, most people who have a near-death experience, when you ask them to tell you about it, they say, well, I, I can't. There aren't any words to describe it. It just does, it can't be put in, into, into language. Yes. And then we say, great, tell me about it. You know? So we know we're forcing them to distort it by putting it into words for us. So they end up using metaphors, whatever comes to them, which are often their cultural or religious metaphors. So I think what's culturally determined is the way they describe it, not the experience itself. For example, uh -huh. people all over the world, and in fact, going back to ancient Greece and, and Egypt, will talk about a warm, loving being of light. And people in a Christian society may say, this was God or this was Jesus, whereas people from other societies would not use those words. And even people here will tell me, I'm going to call this God so you know what I'm talking about. But it wasn't the God I was taught about in church. It's much bigger than that. And other aspects also of the NDE are described in metaphors. For example, many people describe going through a long, dark, enclosed space to get from this world, the physical world, to the spiritual realm. And we tend to call that a tunnel. But people in other worlds and other societies that don't have a lot of tunnels will use other terms, going into a, a, a cave or a well, um, I interviewed one person who was a truck driver who said, I got sucked into this long tailpipe. And that was his <laughs> metaphor. I love that. Man. So what's, I think what's culturally uh, influenced is the way we describe it, the words we use to describe it, not the experience itself. And I think that's a really nice distinction. Thank you. That hmm. the, the, the experience is the same, but how we tend to describe it is yeah. 
we have to pull metaphors from our own experience. We, right, we, right. we have another choice. But if you look at the experiences that are written in the ancient Greek and, and Roman literature, they don't talk about Christian concepts. And yet they talk about the same NDEs that we have here. Yeah. Nice. I'm, I'm going to hold that one dear. Um, and then people who have mixed traditions hmm. and would pull from each of those that you, you mentioned in the book about a, a woman who is, um, who met the, the God of the forest, a Celtic <laughs> God whose name I can't pronounce. Yeah. Yeah. She, she met both the Celtic God, uh, Kernunos and, uh, uh, a Buddhist, a Buddhist uh, goddess, uh, Kuan Yin, and uh, after the NDE, she said, "This made no sense at all. Uh, you can't have two deities from different different uh, traditions in the same NDE." And she said, "The way I understand that is, this was the way my brain made sense of the experience. It pulled from my knowledge these two symbols of the deity, Kernunos and, and Kuan Yin." but they weren't literally there. This is the way my brain made sense of what I actually experienced. Um, and, you know, a, a good example is, is Anita Morjani, okay. whose family was, was, was Hindu, um, but she was raised in a uh, society that, was, that was, was mixed. It was in Hong Kong. You had, you had Buddhist, you had um, Muslim, you had Christian, and she went to Catholic school. So she had all these different, different cultures in her training. In her NDE, she had things that could be interpreted in all those different cultures. She has a wonderful story about what it's like to be awakened in an NDE. Mm. And if would you tell that, or you had another one too about? Yeah, yeah, there are several like this. The one, the one I like is is um, Anita's metaphor of of being in a living in a, in a dark warehouse where you have a flashlight. And you can shine the flashlight around, and this is our normal consciousness, looking at this or that or that, but you don't know really what's in the warehouse because you can only see a small uh, bit of what your flashlight is shining on. And then suddenly someone turns on the lights and you see it goes on farther than you could ever imagine with all different things in there that you can never, never imagine. And then the lights get turned off and you're left again with your flashlight back in your brain again. And you can't see the whole thing, but you remember it's there. I've had other people tell me a similar story by, by using the metaphor of driving in a, in a dark road at night with just your headlights shining on the road in front of you. And then a flash of lightning lights up the whole scene where you can see the whole uh, surrounding. And then the flash of lightning is gone, but you remember what's out there. So that seems... Um... Maybe that's what happened to me. Because uh, <laughs> I would think that would just ignite your curiosity that, oh my gosh, there's so much more yeah. out here. Yeah. What, what, can, what else can I explore besides this road that I'm on right. with my two headlights? Right. Okay. Um, so when, when people leave their physical bodies and they go into the non-physical world, they'll sometimes describe themselves like they're an energetic duplicate of their physical body. 
Um, but do they see themselves in other ways too? They do, they do. Um, and again, this is something that may be culturally determined. Um, you know, some people talk about the silver cord going from your physical body to your, um, your spiritual body. Others don't talk about that. Um, and some talk as if they have a body like the physical body that's not material over there. Others do not. Others just say, I was just a consciousness. I didn't have a body at all. Just mm -hmm. my, my thoughts and nothing else. Um, and some describe themselves as a little ball of light, like the ball of light, but a smaller version of it. So I think that's uh, culturally determined how you describe what you experienced at that point. So we have um, switching subjects again. Um, since you were at the very beginning of all this, mm. and we're now 40 some odd years later, um, you have seen uh, individuals in our culture um, resist this, this information that you were bringing forth um, and, and then have that evolve over time. Uh, yeah. What was that like at the beginning when it seemed yeah. like everybody said no? Yeah, it, it was challenging because um, people, um, for one thing, uh, didn't believe they were real. No one had talked about these NDEs before. Um, so when I started talking about that, they're saying, oh, you're being uh, uh, fooled by a couple of patients. Um, and then once they realized that these things are happening, they started dismissing them as just tricks of the brain. But I am very fortunate that I work with physicians and with nurses. And these are very practical people. Uh, they're more like engineers than scientists. They're concerned with what are the real effects of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So if you can show a doctor or a nurse that it's important for them to know about this because these things really affect their patients, they want to know about it. Whether they can understand it or not, they want to learn about it. So I've seen a vast change over the past half century in how people in my profession deal with these things. When we first started doing this, went back in 1980, a few of us, uh, Mike Sabom and, and Glenn Gabbard and I talked at the American Medical Association about near-death experiences. And there was a very polite silence in the audience and <laughs> nobody said a word. And now when we talk to these conferences, it's rare that doctors in the audience don't stand up and say, let me tell you about my experience. They're widely accepted now and widely known. In fact, they're being taught in several medical schools now. Uh, it's just a fact of life. Like we should not talk about um, uh, uh, sexual abuse, or we didn't talk about alcohol abuse because those are considered taboo topics. And we realize now these are important things to talk about with your patients. And spirituality is becoming one of those things that used to be taboo. And now we realize is an important part of patients' lives. And this cultural shift, how did it happen? It happens gradually, very gradually. I mean, it's been 50 years and we're just still making headway with it. It's partly through educating people like doctors and nurses, but it's also the uh, popular culture that's picked up on this. I mean, Homer Simpson's had an NDE now. Everybody's had them. <laughs> I um, didn't realize Homer was yeah. one, of, one of the brethren, okay? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, when you see this time after time in movies and on television shows, 
it becomes less frightening to you and more acceptable to talk about these things. And once it's acceptable to talk about it, then you start hearing about it from your aunt or your uncle or your son, and you realize it's all around us. I was thinking of Harry Potter you mm. know, in the last film. He had a wonderful NDE. Mm. So, yeah, it's everywhere. Yeah. It's everywhere. Um, and one of the consequences of, of people leaving, coming out of an NDE is they lose their fear of death. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so what happens to them if you aren't afraid of dying? Yeah, well, that actually is actually the most, the most consistent thing we hear from NDEs, that they're not afraid of dying anymore. When I first started hearing about these um, 40 years ago, I was worried because as a psychiatrist, I deal with people who are suicidal all the time. And a lot of people are thinking about taking their lives, but are deterred because they're afraid what might happen to them if they did that. And if we tell them, there's nothing to be afraid of, death is not something to be afraid of, is that going to make them more suicidal? Mm -hmm. So being a scientist, I did a study of this. And I interviewed people who had suicide attempts and then either had or didn't have a near-death experience as a result of that attempt. And what I found to my surprise is that those who had an NDE were much less suicidal afterwards than those people who didn't have an NDE. And when I asked them about it, they said that well, they have the same problems they had before they had the suicide attempt. Now they see those problems from a different perspective. Oh, nice. That my problems are not just this bag of skin. That's, that's irrelevant. But I'm part of something much greater than that. And I can see that these problems are not something to be run away from, but something I have to grapple with and learn from and grow from. And they see a meaning and a purpose in everything that happens to them which makes their life much more meaningful and makes them less suicidal. Isn't that good news? Mm. Yeah. Okay, uh, another side effect of this, by the way, Scott, is that yeah. if you're less afraid of dying, you also become less afraid of living. You're not yeah. afraid of taking risks. You're not afraid of losing your life. So you intend to enjoy life a lot more. I'm all about bringing joy into our lives. That's a, that's a wonderful thing to, yeah. to end up our interview on uh, <laughs> with just one. I have a, uh, all right. So I was talking to a friend of mine and I said, I was going to interview you. And she said, oh, he's, he's interviewed so many people. And there's one thing I've never heard him talk about when we transition into the non-physical world, are we still married? Huh. Do, we have, do we have spouses? Do you have any data on that? Um, I don't have data. Uh, but what people tell me is that these relationships, just like everything else about us, is an earthbound thing. The fact that you may be male of a certain age, of a certain political affiliation, of certain nationality, these are totally irrelevant to who you are. And when you transition to the other realm, you put aside all those things. Um, and relationships are like that also. You know, you don't have the same uh, earthbound restrictions on your relationships that you do uh, down here. So I think, I think if you're talking about, about, will I still love my spouse? Yeah, love is all over the place there. Um, but it's not the 
the type of conditional jealous love that we have here on this earth. It's a more unconditional love. That makes total sense to me. All right, I'm going to um, end on this quote I'd like you to respond to. It's from Fran Sherwood. Mm. Focusing not on the experience itself, but on acting on what she learned. So when people come back, yes, it's interesting what, yeah. what it, they went through, but that's not the point. That's right. Exactly. And, you know, many people have said this, like, like Fran did, that you come back wanting to talk about this and share with other people, but talking is beside the point. You really need to live it, to show people with your actions, with your life, what you learn, not just tell them about it. And what's important is that you change yourself and give other people a model for how they should change. Lovely. Is there anything you would like to leave us with that I forgot to ask you that I should have? I think uh, as much as we know about NDEs, we still don't know very much at all. And especially those of us who haven't had an NDE are sort of stabbing in the dark. So I think we need to keep an open mind about all these things and be comfortable with not knowing all the answers. Because I think as many NDEs say to us, we're not going to have the answers in our science and our language. It's beyond our language to understand these things. Lovely. And lovely that you could join us and be with us today. What a great interview. Thank, Thank you, Scott. Bruce. It's been fun. It has been fun. So, Thank you, Bruce. Yep. Off we go. Okay. Enjoy your afternoon. Enjoy your evening. And once again, thank you for writing after. <laughs> thank you, Scott. Love it. Bye-bye. Bye. My favorite parts of the interview were these. We're all in this together. This is a consequence of near-death experiencers learning that the very fabric of the universe is unity, not duality. Duality seems to be an overlay on the unity universe so that we can have the experience of illusionary separation from the divine. Remember the both and discussion? We can be both a separate consciousness and at the same time connected to the consciousness whole of the universe. An NDEer I interviewed put it like this. If I were to reach out and strike you, I would literally be striking myself. And why would I do that? With that awareness and the life review to give you a first-person experience of the consequences of your actions, this adds emphasis to the eighth lesson derived from Bruce's 40-plus years of research. If you remember... He said the golden rule is not just a social nicety. It's a rule of nature. What you give out is what you give back. What you give out is what you get back. We live in a reactive universe. Second insight. I really appreciated his story about the Dalai Lama and how both science and Buddhism are based on observation. It's one of the reasons I appreciate Bob Monroe so much. He was a pioneer in the study and application of out-of-body phenomena. 
Mr. Monroe would tell those of us studying and teaching at the Monroe Institute what he believed about the physical and non-physical universes based on his observations and those who studied with him to date. Here's the cool part. With the proviso that he reserved the right to change his mind based on new data. I most respect him for that philosophy. If adopted, that flexibility will make us all better members of the human race. Third insight. Look for more research into how we can make our minds go quiet so as to bypass the non-physical information filter installed when we came into the physical universe. Bypassing that filter allows the information from the non-physical universe to come in. Check out my website, neardeathmeditations.com, for more resources on this topic. Fourth insight. I was struck with how Dr. Grayson explained the original language of the NDE is probably all the same. But our brains had to filter it with the metaphors lodged in our memory in order for us to make sense of it. That would explain how so much of the NDE experience seemed to be culturally derived. Number five. <laughs> I love this. If you ask an NDEer what they were like before the experience and then ask them to describe to you what interests them now, you would say that their curiosity was ignited by the NDE. They won't tell you that exactly. You have to pay attention to how their interests and activities were changed or heightened. This is where good questions and perceptive listening makes a difference. I attribute ignited curiosity to the insights drawn from touching the light in the Unity universe. It was no mistake that both Anita Morjani's warehouse metaphor and Bruce Grayson's car driving at night metaphor both involved a big light being turned on temporarily. The memory of what was in the dark never goes away. The curiosity of how to find it and what lies beyond our limited flashlight view has then been lit. Number six. He ended the interview by saying that near-death experiences cause experiencers to be less afraid of dying and therefore less afraid of living. This has profound consequences for all of us because it means that the study of NDEs is not about the phenomena or about the dying. The impact is on our lives here in the physical. Find a way to be less afraid of dying so you can be less afraid of living. That will bring joy into your life today. Then, mentor that attitude to everyone you meet. Number seven, and last point. More than any one person, Dr. Bruce Grayson has been responsible for a major cultural shift in the Western culture. He and the people associated with the organization he helped form, the International Association for Near-Death Studies, have almost totally changed how we feel about death in the space of only 40 years. How do I know this? Think back to as little as 10 years ago. Whenever we talked about death, this image was almost always present. Let me show you. 
this guy. The Grim Reaper. It's gone now. It has been replaced with this image. The light at the end of the tunnel. Notice how different they feel. The Grim Reaper feels gruesome, alone, and at the mercy of some benevolent force. Her. The light at the end of the tunnel has us move from darkness and denseness into the physical world, up in, of the physical world, into the light of the non-physical world. We have agency. We are choosing to move into the love of God. It's hopeful, too. In the light, there are friends, family, and other loved ones waiting to embrace us upon our return. We are returned from whence we came into a benevolent universe. On that note, it's a wrap. If you're watching on YouTube, like, subscribe, and comment. You can find the Afterlife Files on all podcast streaming apps, Apple, Google, Spotify, the lot. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Or pay us a special visit at neardeathmeditations.com. Bye now.